your children, um, reaching out with our hands, uh, acknowledging that we need you and that we need your word to come to us. And we don't want to just be listeners of the word, Father. We want to be doers of the words that we talked about last week. And, and so, Father, our, our hands extended our, um, an invitation to you uh, to come into our lives and to do the work that you desire to do from your word. May the word have power. Uh, may it cut sharper than a two-edged sword. May it have the ability to transform lives. So, Father, we receive your word with grateful hearts, with attentive ears, and uh, with a soul that is responsive and receptive to you. So bless us to that end. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And all of God's people together said, amen. Thank you. Well, as I mentioned, uh, this is uh, week number four in our series of messages, Survivor 2015. And uh, as I've done other weeks, I would like to just take a few moments to review to help you kind of get caught up with the context so that the text takes on life. And, uh, and also it'll help those of you who haven't been here every Sunday to uh, kind of catch up with where we're going to be today, James discussing surviving prejudice. So um, we begin with uh, the author, uh, James, uh, we've decided is the uh, younger uh, half-brother of Jesus, uh, who grew up to be one of the leaders of the church, and he was one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, we also know that um, uh, he probably wrote the book of James somewhere between 55 and 60 A.D., and we also know that James was martyred at an A.D. 62, so he didn't live a long life. Um, in the time that James was writing, there was a lot of turmoil in the Roman Empire. And most of it was because of the emperor, Nero. Uh, Nero reigned from 54 to 68 AD. And during those 14 years, it was a reign of terror. And terror especially against Christians. Uh, he was determined, along with his uh, successors, Domitian and Diocletian, he was determined to wipe out Christianity. All, all he actually ended up doing was making Christianity more alive and, more, uh, and, and grow faster than he ever imagined. But Nero was the one who systematically tortured and killed Christians in Nero's circus. Uh, he was the one that started out by killing hundreds and by the end of his reign in 64 AD was killing thousands of believers of Christians every year. Into that context, into that milieu, James is writing his letter. The Christians are being persecuted. They're being boycotted. Uh, they have no say. They have no leverage. They have no money. And into that, James writes this very practical letter about how we're supposed to survive in those kinds of days. Now, it's similar. Even though we are very comfortable, we live in a world that's very protected. Uh, the world that we find Christians in Syria, Coptic Christians and other Christians in Syria and other places, was very similar to the kind of place that James was writing about. So I, I, I trust that you're praying for these uh, believers worldwide who are being systematically um, cut down by ISIS and other terrorist organizations. That's very similar to what was happening in James' day. So what's James' message? He begins by talking about uh, two things, uh, trials and testings in the first chapter. 
And trials or testings are those things that happen in life that happen to all of us, things that we come up against, that uh, on the other side of those things, if we persevere and if we go through them with the, the right spirit, the right heart, that God says, I'm always on the other side of those things. Really, I'm in the middle of them, but sometimes you don't see that. I'm always on the other side of those testings. We also realize that the testings aren't something that God has put in our way to help us stumble over, okay? Uh, in fact, he says God doesn't tempt anyone, so we don't blame God. We don't blame the devil. Uh, we look at ourselves, and we recognize that there really are three sources of these trials, these testings. Uh, one source is our own sinfulness. We sin, we do something wrong, we pay the consequences of those. That's one of the times that we find that we're being tested because of our own sinfulness and our own foolishness. Another time that we get tested is when somebody else is sinful, right? Somebody else does something wrong that impacts us. We didn't do anything, didn't do it ourselves, but that impacts us. And the third reason, probably the most overarching reason that we find ourselves stumbling over testings and trials is that we just simply live in a broken, sinful world. It just is. God, God is, uh, Satan is the God of this world. Uh, this society is going one direction. Christians are going the other direction. We're just going to face a lot of trials and testings because we live in this broken world. And God's promise in the first chapter is that he will always be in the midst of those things. God never promised to keep you from tribulations. He promised to be with you in the midst of those tribulations. God never promised to keep you from testings or trials. He promised to be with you and on the other side of those testings and trials. And the two weeks ago, we looked at the word temptation. And temptation is a completely different word. Um, now, and here's how we described temptation. It was from uh, the end of chapter one, and we described it this way, uh, using a phrase that's called the sin cycle. Here's what the sin cycle looks and feels like. Uh, the sin cycle starts with temptation. And temptation is just out here. It's just amoral. It's not good or bad. It's just a temptation, right? Starts to, and then the other thing that comes over here is our own strong desire. God didn't make us feel this way. God didn't, uh, you know, the devil didn't make us feel this way. It's our own strong desire. And when our own strong desire is attached to any temptation... That gives birth to something else. And what that gives birth to is what? Sin, okay? And when that sin is fully gestated, when that sin is fully involved and enshrined and encompassed in our lives, that sin gives birth to death. That's the sin cycle. So, and, and, it's, and God's not doing it. The devil's not doing it. We're doing it by our own strong desire. And that own strong desire is different for every one of us. Every one of us have what we call designer bait, you know, where the enemy kind of puts it in front of our nose. Uh, for me, it was gambling. For you, it might, it's something else. But all of us have this designer bait that is a strong desire that somehow we have come to believe that through that strong desire, it will satisfy our souls. Somehow, that strong desire will make us feel better, will make us feel whole, will make us feel real. And uh, we have come to believe that, that, and we know that only Jesus can do that, but we have come to believe that, and when that strong desire gets attached to a temptation, that gives birth to sin, and that's the sin cycle. And we recognized how that we, as Christ followers, have to surrender our lives completely to the Father in order to avoid that. And then last week, we talked about surviving deception. And that was based on the word, on the uh, verse, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So the deception is this. The deception is that we can even as Christ followers, we can be very intent on hearing the word of God right now, 
you're hearing the Word of God. In your devotions, you're reading the Word of God. You listen to Christian music. You listen to sermon tapes. You listen to all kinds of places where the Word of God is getting in your head. And what James is saying is that's good. That's good. I'm glad. That's good. But if that doesn't travel 18 inches to your heart, it has no impact on your life. Don't deceive yourself. Hearing alone is not enough. But it is what? Doing the Word of God. Jesus said, love one another. We can all quote the verse. Yep, we're supposed to love one another. But Jesus said, I don't want you to quote the verse. I want you to go and do it. <laughs> I want you to go and love your enemies. I want you to go and love those who are different from you. That's what I want you to do. So the deception is when we know the Bible, we know doctrine, we know theology, we know stuff, but it doesn't get into our lives in a way that we're actually doing the gospel. And, um, and that's what we talked about. That's like auditing a class, right? Auditing a class is where you go to the class, go to church, listen, but you don't do the work. You don't do the papers. You don't do the tests. You don't let that, that, that teaching get inside of you. And that's what God has called us to, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Today, the message from James is entitled Surviving Prejudice. Now, whether we like to admit it or not, we all suffer, or at least from some extent, what I call the paralysis of partiality or the we-they syndrome. Well, we, speaking of you and your family or you and your group, and they, speaking of another individual or another group, we-they, there's something different about them. The color of their skin, their orientation, their politics, their behavior. There's something different. We, they. Anytime you do that, James says, that's being partial. This spiritual disease that he calls discrimination or favoritism or prejudice, it shows up everywhere and in everyone. It's that thing that we call, you know what? I don't want to say this out loud, but I really believe it. I'm just better than you. I'm more moral. I'm more spiritual, I'm a better worker, I'm just better than you. And that's hiding under the surface of every single person. People with this disease lose their ability to see and perceive people with God's eyes. I mean, do you, do you know how God sees people? Do you really know? God doesn't see them on the face God doesn't see them on their behavior. God doesn't see them on the color of their skin or their orientation or anything else. God sees them in their heart. And somehow we have, as Christ followers, we are representing Christ on this planet. We have to figure out how we can see people, not on their face, not on the surface, but see their hearts. Because here's the, the news of the gospel. God wants every one of them. There's no, I, I, I love to fish. And sometimes you go fishing and you say, you know what, everything's going to be a keeper today. Well, God says that all the time. Everyone's a keeper. And that's what God wants us to believe. So people with this disease kind of lose their ability to see and perceive through God's eyes. They evaluate others according to race or face or rank or reputation, political persuasion or sexual orientation. And they have this uncanny ability to name or classify anyone instantly, right? I mean, uh, you, now right now you guys are thinking of somebody that does that. I want you to stop thinking about that other person. In fact, that person might be sitting next to you. You need to start thinking about you. <laughs> 
Because the paralysis of partiality is in every one of us. And you can always think of somebody that's worse than you. That's one of the devil's tools. Always getting to think of somebody that's worse than you. Now, you need to think of you today. What is it that I do that helps me not see people, especially people that are different from me, not see them with the eyes of Jesus? So, let's name those things because you're already thinking about them. Now, in the next 45 seconds, my goal is to offend every one of you, okay? So if I don't, if I don't do that, forgive me, okay? So here we go. All rich people are snobs. All poor people are lazy. All single black women with children are on welfare. All gay people are activists. All Christians are homophobic. All Native Americans are alcoholics. All Christians are right-wing fanatics. All old people are closed-minded. And that's a fact. Oh, no, I shouldn't say that, right? All smart people are nerds and geeks. All Mexicans are illegals. All jocks are dumbs. All politicians are crooked. All Arabs are terrorists. All Muslims are wicked. All teenagers are weird. We know that one's true. All 20-somethings are anti-church. Did I fail to insult anyone or any group? You add to the list. James says, and Jesus emphasizes this throughout the Gospels, especially in Matthew 18, James says, anytime you see a we, they, anytime you see somebody else, you're failing to be impartial. We need to look at people with impartiality. There's a story about a Christian, or excuse me, a Chicago bank uh, that was considering a young Bostonian for a job. So they asked for a letter of recommendation. Uh, the Bosman Investment House, which gave the recommendation, could not say enough good things about the young man. His father was a Cabot, his mother, a Lowell. Also in his blood was a blend of salt and stalls, Peabody's, and others of Boston's first families. His recommendation was given without hesitation. Several days later, the Chicago bank wrote back and said the information supplied was totally inadequate. The bottom of the note read, we are not contemplating using the young med for breeding purposes, just for a job. <laughs> How often do we judge people on the face, on the surface, the bloodline, the opportunities. Sherry and I are just as hooked, and this is a confession, God forgive me, we are hooked on Downton Abbey. Okay, we are. I know, I know, some of you lamers are just like us. We're hooked on it, but here's the deal. I hate the premise of that show. Because the premise of that show is, you're up here and you're down here, and you're born that way. And God says, absolutely not to all of that. This is more about, it's not more about family heritage or color of skin or sexual orientation or size of your bank account or location of your home or designer labels or your title at work or your age or your looks or your weight or your height or your hairstyle. This spiritual disease manifests itself when we measure people by externals. Image is everything. Jesus says the problem with people who measure others this way, they are diseased. They are sick. They have a problem, and that problem is called sin. I'd like to soften that somehow, but that's what Jesus says, and that's what James says. Now, aren't you glad? Okay, wipe your brow. Aren't you glad that that kind of disease never infiltrates the church? You have a very uncomfortable laugh. It's okay. First service didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Aren't you glad that Christians, we, are immune from discrimination? from snobbery, from favoritism, 
and spiritual pride. In the first century, the religious elite that Jesus had to deal with are the rabbis. And one of the rabbis' favorite prayers is they stood in the temple and they raised their arms with their phylacteries riding down in their beautiful robes. They would say, Yahweh, uh, Jehovah, I thank God that I was not born a Gentile, a dog, or a woman. That's what they prayed. These were the religious leaders of the day. But it's not only a serious problem today. It was a very serious problem in Jesus' day as well. Our text this morning is from chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2. The text that we'll be reading is verses 1 to 13. And if you can, you, you will use your iPad or your iPhone, your smartphone. It's in your bulletin on the screen. And I want to say to you, read your Bibles. Every day you will be amazed at the great things that God has for you in this book. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Close the doors, lock the doors, don't let anybody leave because they're not going to like what they hear. Here's James. My dear brothers and sisters. Notice how he's very nice and he kind of sets you up. Oh, okay, good. We're dear brothers and sisters. How can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example... Suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, James writes. Dear brothers and sisters, verse 5. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed. It is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your enemy, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said, you must not commit adultery, also said, you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. And when you finish reading that, you go, ouch. You know, many times you go, oh, that was really good. No, nope, you just go, ouch. The problem. Now, what I want to do today is uh, give you a simple outline. The outline goes like this. Verses 1 to 4 is where Jesus, or excuse me, James identifies and illustrates the problem, okay? James 1 to 4, the problem. Verses 5 to 11, he argues against the problem. And verses 12 and 13, thank God for 12 and 13, he offers the solution. So step number one, the problem. In one word, the word that's used in the original language, favoritism, and the word favoritism means to lift up the face. It means to accept or reject someone on face value alone. 
To reject someone or accept someone based on face value alone. How they look, how they behave, how they talk. All of those are externals to accept or reject someone based on that. So a couple of weeks ago, as you've heard us talk about, if you weren't here, uh, we had um, baptisms in both of our services. We baptized eight in the first service, six in the second service. In the first service, uh, we baptized uh, uh, two or three children, and, uh, and then the rest were adults. And uh, one of the children that was baptized was uh, Justin, uh, Bass, uh, Justin Bassett. And Justin was the youngest one to be baptized, I think, or maybe Julia was. But anyway, he was very young, I think seven years old, knows and loves Jesus, and he was baptized. And, and when he was baptized, all of the first, they just stood on their feet and cheered and and you could just see Justin beaming, okay. Well, a little bit later in the baptism service, I baptized Aaron. Aaron is uh, a friend fr that comes to our Friday morning class, a, a men's discipleship class. Paul Metcalf brought him. And uh, he's from California, came out of the drug scene, out of the mean streets of Los Angeles, very tough background. Aaron has more ink on his body than we have our toner in the copy room, okay. The guy has just... I don't know, I've never seen him with his shirt off, but his arms and his, I mean, he's got ink everywhere. And this guy looks different than most of us, right? He just does. And, but here's, here's what happened. Uh, Aaron came to Christ in one of our Friday mornings. And then he started asking about baptism. And I said, we're going to have a baptism. Why don't you be baptized? He said, I'd love to be baptized. And, and so he was baptized. And, and here's the deal. He looks different in every way than Justin Bassett. Justin's this sweet little tender-hearted boy who loves Jesus, raised with all the advantages in a suburban Chandler home with brothers and sisters and mommy and daddy who loves him. Everything was good for Justin. Aaron had none of that. But here there was equal ground on the, on, on, in, in baptism. Here there was this, this amazing man that had a life-transforming relationship with Jesus and wanted to show that and he was baptized and the, the people in the service just stood on their feet and they cheered once again. They showed no partiality whatsoever. Just that this man has given his heart to Jesus in the same way that Justin has. And it was a beautiful thing to behold. It was amazing to see that. That's what we're talking about. We don't show partiality based on what somebody looks like or even how they behave or what they do or what they say. We have to know their heart, know what God is doing there. By the way, after the baptism, Aaron, he said, hey, Pastor Dwayne, I said, what? He said, um, I got my phone baptized too. <laughs> and my wallet. I mean, he was so excited about this, he forgot to empty his pockets in his shorts. And by the way, this is just a side note. Some of you need to have your phones baptized. They need to be dunked, okay? So just, just saying, you know. They need to be sanctified. I'm not telling you to get rid of them. They just need to be sanctified, right? So anyway, so this is what James is talking about. The problem is when we lift up somebody else's face, on the face of things, we say, okay, that guy or that girl or the way that guy's walking or the tattoos or the metal or the way he wears his pants or that guy, there's something wrong with him. You know, that guy was created by God. That guy was also maybe redeemed by God. That guy needs Jesus. And how is anybody going to find Christ if they see Christians pointing their finger and saying, look at the way you look. Look at the way you behave. Look at the way you walk in your life. Well, let's look at the examples that James gave. 
So this rich guy drives up in his Porsche into our parking lot. He's wearing Italian shoes, a tailored suit, <laughs> you know he's not from our, our church, and a silk tie. His money is invested, his plastic is golden, he lives like he flies, first class. He's young, his belly is flat, and I'll remember the day. His eyes are sharp, he's mastered the three Ps, prosperity, posterity, and power. He comes a little bit late, just so he'll be seen. And at the same time, there's a, another man that walks into the church. It's obvious to most of us that, well, this guy's a homeless guy, right? He looks it, <laughs> he smells it, maybe he's even a little bit wired. I mean, we don't know, but he wanders into our church, he comes into our church, and the usher sees both of these men, and he goes up to the one and says, uh, listen, we've got a prime seat for you, okay? It's right here behind Dwayne and Sherry, right? That's the best seat in the church, right here. Keep an eye on us, right? And, uh, and, 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 and man, please, uh, we hope that you enjoy the service. Let me know if there's anything I can get. Get you water, cappuccino, whatever you need, I'll get it for you, okay? So real, and maybe the usher's thinking, you know what? If this guy starts coming to church, maybe he'll start tithing, you know? And he's probably got lots of money, and so, man, this could be awesome for the church. And so then the usher goes back, and there's this other guy. And uh, obviously, you know, he's just nothing, you know? And, and the usher says, well, you know, you can sit in the back over there, you know, back where, you know, in the back behind the bap by the baptism. And if you can't find a seat back there, because the seats in the back usually go first, uh, um, just sit on the floor. And uh, the usher's probably thinking to himself, you know what, this guy... This guy's going to be a drain on our resources. He's not going to give anything. In fact, we're going to probably have to get him into rehab. It's going to cost us that. We're going to maybe have to buy him food, help him with a place to live. And the usher's thinking, man, this guy's going to be a real drain on our resources. That, James says, is favoritism. It's partiality. It's discrimination. And then James uses two arguments to talk about this. The first argument is, Favoritism is contrary to the heart of God. Favoritism is contrary to the heart of God. Now, I had a uh, test on Wednesday. Uh, Wednesday uh, mornings, uh, as soon as I get into the office, I try to get in early until I'm done. It could be noon, one, two o'clock. I lock, don't lock it, but I close my office door, and that's when I write my sermon for the following Sunday. So, uh, Rochelle is very trained. Uh, you know, if there's phone calls, don't bother me. Just take a message. If somebody wants to talk to me, doors closed, sermon day, don't come aboard, you know. So, she knows that. And, well, this last Wednesday, there was this very timid knock at the door. I knew it was Rochelle. And so, she opened the door, and she peeks in, and I gave her the look, which, you know, I, you know, asked Sherry. It's not pretty. And uh, Sherry said, uh, Pastor Dwayne, or Rochelle said, Pastor Dwayne, there's somebody out here that needs to talk to you. And I said, okay, you know, so I get up. Sure enough, it's that guy. That second guy that came to church. That homeless guy. <laughs> His name was Jerry. And obviously I knew what, he wanted some money. And so we started talking and come to find out, he said, I don't want any money. I, I just 
need a ride to the hospital. He said, I'm really sick. I don't know what's wrong with me. And I asked him some questions. He'd been walking for miles and miles. His feet were completely blistered. He couldn't walk any further. He couldn't make it all the way to the hospital. So I said, sure, I'll, I'll take you to the hospital. So I drove him over there. We talked, um, checked him in, uh, prayed with him. I gave him some money. I, I you know, I, you call me a sucker, whatever. I just felt like it was the right thing to do. And, and uh, then I left. And on my way back to the church, I thought, God, come on. You know what I was preaching on this Sunday. You know exactly what I was preaching on. And you put this test right in front of me. And I, and, and I did it, but I didn't do it with a good attitude. I didn't do it with a good... By the end of the time with Jerry, I, I was good. And I, was, I really was loving on him. But at first, I was just so irritated that I had important things to do. I'm an important guy. I get to preach to these people on Sunday. You know, I've, I've got status. I, don't people know that I'm important? Well, apparently, Michelle, Michelle doesn't know that. But that, that's all right. So, listen, you're going to have these tests all the time. And mine was so poignant. It was so big. It was right in my face. God says, how did you look at, when you walked out of your office, how did you look? I know how I looked at, Brandon, you know how we look at these guys. We go, okay, you know, let's suck it up. Let's do the Christian thing, you know. But we're thinking, man, I don't have the time for this. I don't have an extra 20 in my wallet. I just don't want to do this. God says, listen, favoritism is contrary to the heart of God because God cares about every single soul. God cares about every single soul. Person. God chooses the poor. He chooses the humble. He chooses the broken. He chooses the meek. He chooses all of those people. Let me tell you who else he chooses. What happened to my poster? Okay. Oh, here it is. So in my office, if you ever come into my office for counseling, I put you in a chair just opposite this poster. And that means you're usually... Oh, thank you. Okay. Let me read you what it says. Okay. It says, you seriously think God can't use you? Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a dreamer. Jacob is a liar. Leah was ugly. Joseph was abused. Moses, a stuttering problem. Gideon was afraid. Samson had long hair. Oh, oh God forbid, right? And, and I lived in the 60s. Uh, Samson had long hair and was a womanizer. Uh, Rahab uh, was a prostitute. On and on and on and on down to the end of that. And he says, do you seriously think God can't use you? Are you kidding me? Are you seriously don't think that that kid with red spiked hair and pants below his rear end and metal and ink all over, you seriously don't think God can use that kid? Of course he can. He can use you. And you're straight-laced and you look good and, and you're groomed somewhat and you, all of that. And God can use anyone. You see, here's what God is saying to us. Whose soul is more worthy? Yours or that kid's? Whose soul is more worthy? Dwayne's or Jerry? Whose soul is more worthy? God says, they're equal. They matter to me. They matter to me so much. I will do anything. I did anything. I died on the cross for their sins. And Dwayne, who's going to tell them if not you? Who's going to tell? But if you are a Christian that says, yeah, look at that Arab. Look at that homosexual. Look at that guy that's not working, doesn't have a... If you're that person, God forgive you. 
God forgive you. God has called us to represent him, to see these people with the eyes of Jesus. God says, I want them all. Tall, short, fat, thin, brilliant, dull, wealthy, poor, good, evil, black, white, brown, beautiful, plain, sophisticated, common, educated, simple, motivated, lazy, cool, square. I want them all. Every single one of them. I want them all. That's the heart of God. Favoritism, discrimination is contrary to the heart of God. He wants them all. And he wants us to love them like he loves them. There's a second argument that that James puts forth, and it's this. When we discriminate, when we are partial, it it injures the work of the kingdom of God. That's right. It injures the work of the kingdom of God. So whenever I I see someone, you know, we don't have some of the things going on like they do most recently in, in Henderson, Missouri, and back on the East Coast, it happens, it does, it does, it happens downtown Phoenix and every other place, but it's got not right in our backyard, but every time one of these things happen and you see some kid or some person that's different or somebody that's marching and protesting and you, you look at them and say, oh, that just disgusts me. God says, they don't disgust me. And, and, here's, and God doesn't do this thing with me anymore that says, Dwayne, you're being a bigot or you're being prejudiced. He doesn't do that anymore. Here's what he does. This is even worse. <laughs> he says, take another look. Take another look at that person. Take another look at that girl or that guy, that man, that woman. Take another look. Look at them through my eyes. Don't look on the face of them. Don't look at how they appear or even what they're doing or what, how they're behaving. Take another look. And the only way I know how to take another look is to be involved in their lives, is to care enough to say, I care, is to care enough to be there, is to care enough to help in some way to love them as Jesus loved them until they ask you why. Jesus says, I want them all. And that's the purpose of the church, to bring hope, not disgust or disapproval, hope to the community, to the world. See, we forget something. Um, we forget, we, we tend, as Christians, we tend to be judgmental about all these bad things happening in our world. <laughs> Paul made it really clear in 1 Corinthians 5 that we are not called upon to judge outsiders. It's not your job to judge the world. These people don't know Christ. Why would they behave like Christians? They don't behave like Christians because they're not. We're not supposed to judge them. We're supposed to judge in here because we have all signed up for the same thing, right? We're, we're supposed to hold each other accountable in here, but we're not supposed to judge and point fingers. At we're supposed to love them. That's the only currency we need. We're supposed to love them and to love them and to see them with the eyes of Jesus. Kingdom work is not making sure we're comfortable or happy. It's getting up and doing the gospel, working the gospel. So then, that's the problem. That's his argument. And then finally, the solution. And the solution, if you read in your text, really is one word, and that one word is mercy. Mercy is to hold back punishment that is due. 
And then James uses his argument about offering mercy to others in the same way that God has offered mercy to us. Now, the best description of that that I know is in Matthew 18, beginning at verse 21. We don't have time to go through the text, but you can read that at home. Matthew 18, 21 is the uh, parable, the story of the unmerciful servant. So here's the way the story goes for those of you that aren't, haven't been around the Bible very much. So there's this, this king and this servant, or this landowner and this servant, and uh, the servant somehow, some way, has gotten in debt to the king, the master, uh, to the tune of 10,000 talents. Now, you say, okay, is that a lot of money? Well, let me tell you this. The gross national product of Jerusalem in that same year was 9,000 talents. <laughs> and this one guy owes one guy 10,000 talents. He, he couldn't pay that back in 150 years. He couldn't pay that back in a million years. He had no ability, no possibility of ever paying back that debt. So he goes to the king. He falls on his face crying crocodile tears, sad. He said, listen, master, I'm sorry. I can't pay you back. In fact, I can't pay you anything back and I have nothing and I'm sorry and I, I can never pay you back and please don't kill me. I, I don't know what you want me to do. And the king, the master said, um, I, I forgive you. I, I offer you mercy. I forgive you that debt. That debt, that extraordinary debt that could never be repaid was forgiven. So now the guy is happy, right? Uh, he's, he's, you know, yippy skippy, runs out of the master's house, and he runs into a guy that owes him a hundred bucks, okay? So what does he do? He grabs the guy by the throat, and he starts choking him. He says, give me my money back. Give me my hundred bucks. And then Jesus says, that's what you do. Not one of us realize fully the debt that we owe to God. How many sins of yours has he forgiven? 20%? 30%? How about this? He has forgiven every one of your sins, thought, word, and deed, past, present, and future, everything. You have a debt so great to God, you couldn't begin to pay it back if you ever wanted to. And then we turn around and we tell some kid with his pants around his ankles that somehow, some way, he doesn't deserve my mercy, my love, and my care. Who are we trying to kid? When you recognize and feel deeply the enormous mercy that God has given you, it makes your heart so full of mercy and forgiveness and grace that you will go to people, you will engage with people, you will love people until they ask you why. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to close with this uh, one story. It's late summer, 1865. Everybody's going to church. The war is over. The South is very upset at what happened, although they're relieved that the war is over, but they're very upset at what happened. And in St. James Episcopal Church in Richmond, Virginia, the church was packed to the rafters. What's the pastor going to say? What's he going to say? What are we going to do? What's going to happen? How can we ever survive without slaves? And all of this angst and all of this worry, and this was all going on in St. Paul's Episcopal Church on a very warm September afternoon in 1865. Comes to the conclusion of the service, and the priest invites the parishioners, the uh, worshipers, to come forward to receive the Eucharist, which is equivalent to our sacrament, uh, the Lord's Supper. So one at a time, the worshipers come forward to receive the Eucharist.
and the priest uh, gives them the bread and the cup and offers them a blessing. And then in about the middle of the service from the back of the church, always from the back of the church, comes this young black man, basically almost skipping up to the front. He's so excited to be able to take the Eucharist. And he comes down and he kneels before the priest and the congregation gasps out loud. And the whispering, what is he doing here? Who told him he could come to our church? Is he making a mockery of us? What is he doing? The priest didn't know what to do. He just kind of stood back. And there was this awkward silence for about two minutes. And finally, from the back of the church, a man who was really bent over by age and circumstance with a gray coat, walked to the front, knelt down behind this, next to this young black man. He nodded to the priest, basically telling the priest, it's now time to serve us. And the priest served this young black man and Robert E. Lee at the same time. At the cross, the ground is even. At baptism, between Justin and Aaron, the ground is even. Today we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. And when we do, I want you to remember, Lord, would you purify my heart around this subject? I don't want to have prejudice. I don't want to think of other people as a them or a they or an it. Lord, would you give me eyes to see that person? Here is where we come to the foot of the cross. Right here is where the ground is even. And you are bid to come to the table, the table of grace. Here, Jesus shed his blood. He allowed his body to be broken for you, for your enormous, vast amount of sins. He did that for you, and he did it for every person on this planet. So we bid you come to the table this morning where this ground is even for all of us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body that was broken for you. Take and eat. After he had taken the bread, he took also the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink ye all of it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until I come again. We invite you to come to the table today. We invite you to come not because you're sinless, because you're not. Not because you're perfect, because you're not. We invite you to come because you are broken, you're a sinner, and you're in desperate need of the grace that God wants to give you. So we bid you come.